0: Good morning, church. My name is Joel Dunn. Um, I'm a committed member here at Redeemer San Angelo, and since someone put a microphone in front of me, I'm going to thank all of you for praying for my surgery Thursday. Um, They found far less arthritis than they thought and didn't even have to touch the bicep tendon. They thought they were going to have to stitch it. It just did my heart, gave my heart so much peace and my parents so much peace knowing that God's people were praying for me. So thank you and it is now my privilege to read to you Ephesians 4, verses 11 and 12. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Well, uh, as the band exits the stage, I'll introduce our guest preacher this morning. This is J.R. Cochran. He is uh, the pastor of equipping at the well in Abilene. You've probably heard us talk a little bit about the well. This is where um, Kendall and I came from, and Kelsey, they sent us here to San Angelo to plant Redeemer San Angelo. And so um, JR, for, gosh, almost seven years, was my pastor. Like, not just the guy, (laughs) I told you, (laughs) you guys know this already. I was telling him how last week, it was an emotional morning, and I was crying, and I opened my eyes, and somebody had put a water bottle down here. Was that my wife? Thank you. I didn't see. My eyes were closed. Um, and so I was telling him, "I was probably going to get emotional. I needed to bring a water, and I left it down there. But um, he, he wasn't just the guy with the title pastor at the church I went to. He actually pastored me. And it led to getting into a residency, being really confused, as many of you who were here last week know, uh, you heard the story about just how back and forth we were. We were so unsure, and he was so patient with me through that and helping me discover and understand, um, help, teaching me how to pray through that. And so JR, to say the least, was pretty instrumental in not only my development, but in us getting here. Um, and so once the Lord revealed to us that we'd be coming to St. Angelo, um, JR was, was gracious and, and led me well, uh, and with the, the other elders, at the well, um, eventually sent us out, and so we're grateful that he'd come and preach. Um, and so I'll I'll let him take his sermon now. Thank you for coming. Thanks, brother.
1: Um, brothers and sisters, I was I was glad when they said unto me, "Let us go down to the house of the Lord and Redeemer, San Angelo." Uh, to be with you all, and so I'm glad I get to be here. I am sincere when I say to you that I bring with me greetings and love and affection and concern and prayers of those uh, at the well uh, there in Abilene, getting to see uh, Ryan and Kendall and their kids who are gigantic. Do you feed them anything besides creatine? Give them, them slow them down. Uh, And to get to see uh, Kelsey... uh, Man, I'm a young man, but we have gotten to experience so far three times uh, the sending out uh, and planting of a church. You've got, you've got sister churches in Hutto, and now the official launch this morning uh, of the table in Clyde, America. Uh, and so that's a good news. Uh, and looking at uh, these folks, and Kelsey, where's Kelsey. She go with kiddos. Oh, there she is. It wasn't my doing. Ryan gives me more credit, um, but we have sent you those we loved, and it hurt. I pray one day this body experiences that pain and that joy of sending those you love to do important work for the kingdom. Uh. As I understand it, we are in a series. I'm getting to be a part of a series on uh, what the Lord is doing here. Um, Jesus building his church here at Redeemer San Angelo. Uh, for 2023. So we're getting a little uh, peek behind what uh, the Lord has laid on the hearts of your leaders and how he intends to go about his work uh, in this next year as best as faithful prayers and faithful planning uh, can perceive. And so we're getting to look behind the curtain a little bit. It's it's the old phrase of kind of seeing how the sausage is made. And so I thought uh, this morning it would be appropriate for me to talk a little bit about, to, to share a story about sausage being made. I think probably, uh, you know, I've said this one in a sermon before, so uh, Ryan and Kelsey and Kendall may uh, may uh, be familiar with this one. There was a a, a, fa- a a company, I think it was kind of a small family business up in Chicago, and they were famous for making smoked sausage, and it was a specific I mean, it was, it was unique. It was cured in a certain way. It had a specific mix of flavors, and it was enormously popular in that area and was growing and growing and growing. Um, and so they were uh, just, like, selling everything that they could churn out um, and they started to feel those growing pains. One of the growing pains was because of their manufacturing process, and so in in processing the meat and all the the pieces, that, all the parts that go into making the sausage, right? They in all of those different pieces of the different steps of the process, um, their building that they had used to start out with, and and where they kind of started to expand, they just had started to to take up little hodgepodge buildings throughout the course of their development as as a small business. So it got to the point where they were having to use facility that they'd kind of combined and cobbled together that was not purpose built for what they were doing. And so they might mix up some ingredients over in this space and then the wheelbarrow guy would come in and take those ingredients over to uh, the smoke room. And uh, whenever he got over to the smoke room, the smoking would happen or the curing would happen, whatever the next step was in the process. And then they would take that over and, and take it to a place where it was going to hang and dry. Um, so the wheelbarrow guy would take it from the smoke room over to uh, the room where it, would, where it would dry and hang and before it would be taken again by the wheelbarrow guy uh, over to uh, where they would package it and where it would eventually be uh, sent out, distributed. And so it's because they're kind of going from building to building, sometimes like in lower levels, like it's, it's an inconvenient process. It's not supposed uh, to go this way. And because they had such demand, they're starting to build up a little bit of cash in the bank. And so they decide, okay, we're going to build a, a purpose-built facility for what we're going to do. And to be careful to make sure that they were still uh, putting out the same product, they finally... They, they, they made sure that the recipe, that the ingredients, that the process, that the temperatures, that the times, that all those things were going to be uh, accurately preserved. And they did it. They get the building, you know, uh, built up. They start putting out product, and the feedback starts coming back from customers. And even from themselves, they started to realize it's not the same. We can't figure it out, but it's not the same. And sales start slowing down. And... Um, they, they can't figure it out. They keep going through the process, trying to figure out what happened. What did we do? Because the ingredients are exactly the same. The, the recipe is just right. Our, our temperature, like a, a, the smoker is doing exactly what it's supposed to do, and we're doing it for the exact same amount of time, and we're drying it, it just in the same way that we're supposed to be drying it, and for the same amount of time, putting it in the same packing materials, and it's not the same. It, it's good. But whatever the magic thing was that made it fly off the shelves is gone. So now they have sunk some investment, got some debt, built this thing out, and uh, they have the ability to churn out way more product, and sales are plummeting, and cash is uh, just flying out the doors. So they brought somebody in, and, and he sits them down, and he says, well, tell me how you used to make it. And so they talk to him, and they say, well, you know, we do it over here, the exact same ingredients, the exact same recipes. And then the wheelbarrow guy takes it over here. And then we take it to the smoke room, and it's the exact same temperature and the exact same times, and then the wheelbarrow guy takes it over here. And as they tell that story, what they realized is the only thing missing was the wheelbarrow guy. And eventually they realize, as they went back over to the property that they had been using, that it's not just that it was inconvenient, but it added time and changes that they hadn't been building into the process. So they had to walk from this area over here where they mixed the ingredients, and that area wasn't particularly well ventilated. And then they went through a little causeway that went outside that oftentimes changed the humidity and the temperature that they walked through as they made their way through. And then they would go over to the smoke room, and that area was pretty well ventilated. And so we'd stay at a certain temperature, and the same for the drying room and all these different things. And there were all these things that they didn't even realize were part of the process, but they were the magic. And so the wheelbarrow guy was, was, the, was the magic. Everything else had to be done right. It makes for good, so, but the magic came from the wheelbarrow guy. The reason I tell you that story is because I want to tell you this other story about what's happening in Ephesians, because what you do is important. What you say is important, and how you say it is where the magic is. What you do is important, but how you do it, that's where the magic is. So we're going to talk this morning in Ephesians 4. We've already read uh, the first couple of uh, verses, and so I just want to start walking our way through. We're going to start in verse 11. I'm going to give you a little bit of background and context for that passage. We're going to make our way eventually down through verse 16. So my plan is to read a little bit and talk a little bit. I think that's uh, typically your process as well. So let's start uh, in verse 11 before we jump into that. There's a little background. As you probably know, Ephesians, where we're jumping in here, is chapter four of a six-chapter letter from the Apostle Paul to the church there in Ephesus. Paul is, uh, is an apostle, he's a church planter, and he helps to form this community. You can go find um, the story of their origins back in the book of Acts if you want to see where that comes from, but he knows the faces that he's writing to. So there's a lot of vested time and interest and love that he shares for these people whenever he sends this letter off. You can feel that in certain places throughout the letter if you're aware of it. He starts out in chapter 1 by being grateful, by thanking God for the church in Ephesus, and thanking God for his work. And then the first three chapters really are just him laying out what that work is in the gospel, the power of the gospel, and what it does. Specifically for our purposes in chapter 2, he talks about the fact that at one point, the Gentiles who were in this congregation, those who were not Jews, at one point they were far off, far, that is, uh, from God and far from the people of God, that is, uh, the church uh, of, Jer- of Jerusalem, right? But because of what Christ has done, there's the, there was this dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles that has bro- been broken down. And in his language, it's the breaking down of, of that wall accomplished only by Christ's life, death, and resurrection. It's that breaking down of hostility, that that dividing wall, that leads to what he says is, is two men becoming one. So now there is one body in place of where there were two men. My guess is that this congregation knows a bit about two bodies becoming one, the struggles, the difficulties that can come along with that, and how desperately we need Christ, we need His Spirit, to be able to do that difficult work of loving each other well um, after after those two things have come together. So that's chapter two. Chapter three is a lot of, of Paul just marveling at, worshiping God for, and, and being humbled by how God has used him in the work of the gospel. And that leads us to chapters 4 through 6. So the book is kind of broken in half. Chapters 1 through 3 are what is the gospel and what is the work of the gospel and how, how it powerfully transforms um, all that it touches. Chapters 4 through 6 show us what that looks like in the life of a believer. So where we start here in chapter 4 is really at the beginning of him starting to lay out, here's some implications there. The, in the first few verses before we get to 11 through 16, you're going to see that, that Paul believes that one of the primary, big, most powerful implications of the gospel taking root in the people of God is unity. In fact, if you look up at, we're, we're cheating a little bit, we're, we're going up a little bit earlier than, than our passage, but if you look at, it, at chapter 4, verse 1, it says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which uh, you have been called. There are many places that I've seen throughout Scripture where he says, I urge you to live in a manner worthy of the calling, or where he says, I urge you to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And almost all the time, when he says that phrase, he's urging the church towards unity, toward fighting for unity, striving towards unity, even at great personal cost, sacrifice. Striving for unity, within the church i cannot help but think that through the spirit that paul urges this body towards the same even at great personal cost so he, if you go down through the first 10 verses of chapter 4 you're going to see this this push towards unity Looking at verse 4, it says there's one body, one spirit, as you recall, to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, in all. You're all united into one thing. But then he's careful to say in verse 7 that unity is not uniformity. There is still diversity in this body to be celebrated. There's still diversity in this body to be celebrated. But what he does here is not call them back to diversity based on uh, their, uh, where they come from. He's not saying, remember, you're, you are Jews and Gentiles. He's not trying to re-emphasize that separation that they once felt. Instead, he highlights the diversity of the gifts that God has given to his people. So he says in verse 7, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Grace, a gift given to each of God's people. It's something that's, that's a treasure that is given to each of us, unique in, uh, in how it's going to split up, how it's going to take shape, um, how it's going to even be embodied. You might have the same gift as someone else, but because of your experiences, your background, your passions, your, your, your life experience, all those kind of things, it's going to take shape, take root a little bit differently. And he says that these gifts are not just for you, but they are for the body. Your gifts are for the body, for a common purpose, a common unity, a common bond. We're going to talk specifically about the gifts given to your pastors and leaders here in just a second, but I want to stop for just a bit to say you have been given a gift. It is, it's not something where God wanted you to just take it, right, and then just go say, man... I just want to look at this shiny thing, right? It's not a, a, a golem in the ring of power kind of situation where you just go to the cave and you sit and you look at your precious, right? I don't, know if, I don't know if you've adequately evangelized these people towards Lord of the Rings, but there's... Anybody, anybody in here a nerd? Because if you're not a nerd, you're not going to like me. Um, so we don't, we don't go off into a cave and hide it. That has been given to you. It's like, it's like if you went to war and someone issued you a tank... And you went to try to sell it to see what you could get uh, for an A1 Abrams battle tank on the black market, right? You go to jail for that for a long time, right? And and so it's not given for your sake. It is given for the sake of this common purpose of the church. So if you're not using your gift, here's, here's me saying it as plainly as I can. If you're not using your gift for the encouragement, for the building up, for the benefit of this body, specifically to seek the unity of this body for God's purposes, it's not, it's not that you're just failing to reach your potential, which is how an American or a Western might say it. If you're not using your gift for this body, you're stealing from the people sitting next to you. It's not for you. God gave it to you to steward. It's not for you, it's for them. You're stealing from them. Can I say that more directly? If you don't like me being a nerd or being direct, I mean, we cannot get along, right? So there are these gifts, and it's a diversity of gifts. There's a celebration of that as we come together, as we are unified by those things. And then in verse 11, that's where we get into some gifts that have also been given to the body. Verse 11, and he gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. These are all people specifically um, who are in charge of doing lots of things in terms of leadership. But one thing they all have in common is that they're speaking, teaching, uh, that they're doing ministry of the word we might say. And so we we can see that there's a commonality of teaching gifts. He gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherds, and teachers uh, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So that's 11 and 12. So there are some specific teaching gifts given to leaders, whether they are paid vocational pastors or ministers or teachers here, but also just those who are given to the church for the sake of teaching. So if you have classes here where some of you are teaching, whether you are paid or not, uh, you are given uh, these gifts to be able to teach for the benefit of the body. If you are an elder, which I know you're going to talk a little bit about next week, uh, one of the requirements of an elder is that they be able to teach, Uh, And so uh, teaching is a gift uh, given to these folks to be able to share for the body. But again, I would highlight the fact that these are not just gifts given to them, but it says, and he gave these people, gave these apostles, pastors, teachers, shepherds, right? To equip the saints. So it's not just that these people, these pastors and teachers have been given gifts. It's not just, Brian, that you have gifts. He gave you to these people, Says that. He says he gave shepherds and teachers to the saints. Which means, Ryan, you don't just have gifts. You are a gift. He doesn't just have gifts for this people. He is a gift to this people. And that carries with it some weighty burden. James chapter 3 says, Not many of you should presume to be teachers, because teachers will be judged more strictly. And who can control their tongue? It's like, it's like a little fire sitting in your very mouth, sitting in the midst of a parched land. It sets wildfires before you know it. So not many of you should presume to teach there is significant weight, both the pressure that a congregation puts on them and the expectation, the burden, the judgment that Christ puts on them as teachers and leaders of the church, which is why whenever Paul speaks to Timothy, Uh, someone that he's mentoring there in 1 Timothy chapter 5, he says elders are worthy of double honor, especially those who practice in preaching and teaching. So let me be direct with you again, brothers and sisters. And I do the same because I'm not the primary teacher or preacher um, at our church. My favorite preacher at our church is Austin Lawrence. And so I'm called to do the same sort of submission and honoring that 1 Timothy calls me to there. So my question for you is, do you treat your pastors, your teachers as gifts? Not people who have gifts for you, for your benefit, for your consumptions, but as gifts from Christ to you for the sake of his church. Do we honor them in the way that Scripture calls us to? Because it unequivocally does. Right? But it's not that they sit in places of honor, like the, like the shepherds, like the leaders of Israel of old, who just take from their flock that honor and soak it up and get fat off of it, right? Christ wouldn't allow that to be the case, like some situation where somebody gets honor, gets, gets respect, is treated with care, is treated with gratitude as though they are a gift, and then they just get to sit and absorb it and consume off of it. He wouldn't allow for that. That's what we see in Ezekiel, where, where God like condemns those Israel, those, the leaders of Israel for doing that very thing, for taking the fat and the wool from the sheep and not caring for them and not protecting them. But he has called them to equip the body for some specific things. Says verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So there's work to be done in building and equipping for the work of ministry and for the building up of the body of Christ and there's a goal in mind there. So, so this, this service that uh, apostles, teachers, shepherds, uh, pastors are called to has a, a sort of a season, a time limit on it, which is until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to mature, mature adulthood. So, they have been given to serve for your sake. And to do that with specific goals in mind, that is, for the unity of the body and for the building up of the church. And they're going to keep doing that. They're going to keep being called to that. There's going to continue to be people who are given to the church to do that work until we have all achieved maturity, we've all achieved that unity, we've, we've all arrived at the point where that equipping is no longer necessary. There's a couple of ways that you see the word equip used in the New Testament. Uh, one is to fix broken things, and another is to complete in areas that are lacking. And so what Paul is saying, what the Spirit is saying through the words of Paul and in inspired scripture is that among our body there are many gifts given to us, or many talented people given to us. And, and as I walked around here with Kelsey, as I've talked with Ryan and Brian, that is what they have continually talked about: is the unbelievable gifts the talents, the, the evident spiritual formation and maturity that has already gone before uh, their time uh, serving this body. The people that they're so excited uh, to grow with, to live with, to serve with, to love with. They've seen that this is the case, but even in the midst of those unbelievable gifts, so many signs of encouragement, so many of these kinds of things, even in that there continues to be, how could we deny it, things that are lacking broken things that ought to be fixed. And Christ, through his Spirit, uses the leaders that he places in the church to try, broken and flawed and and, and, uh, imperfect, as they certainly are, to try to fix broken things, to try to speak into places, to complete what is lacking, knowing that they are instruments there, they are tools there. They cannot actually do that work in their own power, by their own gifts, but only through the work of the Spirit. So they're given for that sake until we have all achieved the point where we no longer have any lack and we are no longer broken. When is that? Return of Christ. (laughs) (laughs) Revelation 21. that's, That's when we get there. Okay? So we continue to need this thing. We continue to see our brokenness, and we continue to need to be built up towards unity with one another, towards maturity, right? Then he goes on to define what that mature adulthood, that mature manhood uh, means. It says, this mature manhood, what's the measure of that maturity? To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. It's a high, high bar. We can't accomplish it on our own, best teachers and preachers in the world wouldn't be able to help us accomplish it on our own. You can build a big church. You can build a popular church with good pastors and preachers and worship teams and great facilities and awesome programs and really cool graphic design. You cannot achieve the measure of the fullness of the stature of Christ outside the work of his spirit and outside of him standing in our place. Amen. So what we need is not just good teachers, not just encouragement for one another, not just our sharing our gifts, but we continue to desperately need to depend on the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ, our Savior. Otherwise, this should be wholly depressing. There isn't an ounce of hope in this except for the fact that Christ has done what we needed him to do and has sent his spirit to empower his church, and he will come again. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Mm. So, as we, so it's to the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ, verse 14, so that, so here's, here's the implication of, of what that kind of, as we work towards that maturity, as we start to see the fruit of maturity, right? Just because we can't fully arrive there doesn't mean that we just say like, well, I'm just going to sit back and, and kind of be defeatist about that and not actually get it done, but instead, we're going to see some fruit of that. We're going to see the Lord be, be, show his faithfulness to us, to see some steps towards that. Many of you already see that in each other, in your spouse, in someone that you've seen unbelievable work of the Spirit in. You already see that there has been some work. So as we see that maturity, here's some things we start to see. That we may no longer be children. He's talking about the immaturity of children, Right? There's other places where the childlike, like, like in Matthew 18, the childlike faith is, is, uh, is admired. But here, we're talking about the immaturity of children. And it says, so we'll, we'll, we'll no longer see these things as we grow in maturity. We'll no longer be tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So you no longer be children. Here's a couple of examples of what it looks like to be immature, to be child, in the manner that Paul is talking about. you no longer tossed to and fro. You're no longer carried about by every wind of doctrine. The, the doctrine being the things that you live your life by, those foundational truths that shape what you believe is true around you and that you live by. You have a functional doctrine. All of you are functional theologians, whether you like that word or not. You have some functional foundational truths by which you live, right? Like a functional truth of you is that you believe gravity isn't just a theory, but that it works, right? Because I didn't see anybody walking in here grabbing hold of rails to keep yourself from floating off into space. Without thinking about it, you are functional physicists who believe in the theory of gravity. Same is true for theology. But what we see in, in, when we are immature in the areas, even if we grow in certain areas of maturity, what we see in those areas of immaturity in our own lives, in the lives of body, is this fickleness, this, this sense in which we are easily blown around. So let me ask you this. Are, are, whenever you think about your media consumption, the people that you let have your ear and shape you inform you, do you quickly get mad with them about the things that they're mad about? Are your passions, your convictions, uh, those things easily torn from wherever they used to be? And as soon as you see someone do a specific rant on a specific topic, you're just as mad as them, maybe more angry than them, because they got you riled up and pulled you in that direction. When, uh, when you see someone on cable news or you see some form of, uh, of social media sort of advocacy, Uh, that's pushing towards one thing or another, are you easily pulled in that direction? And suddenly the next conversations, after you do a deep dive on YouTube, after you spend too long on Instagram or TikTok in a specific kind of thread where that algorithm is just feeding you whatever you're going to keep clicking on, right? Whenever you do a couple of deep dives like that over the weekend, and all of a sudden, you realize your conversations are all wrapped up in the talking points that you heard from people who are famous—either that's a, a, you know, a celebrity news personality, a celebrity pastor, a celebrity influencer kind of person. Suddenly, you're just mimicking the things they said. Man, when we are tossed to and fro like that, it says it becomes hard for us to be committed, consistent disciples of Christ. Because what I want to be sharing and what disciples of Christ are sharing, the story that's always on our lips is the story of the gospel. And if you find yourself easily being talked into sharing somebody else's story of good news, somebody else's talking point, somebody else saying, here's the story of what's bad in the world and here's how we go about and fix it, whether that's political or cultural or philosophical, anytime you start start uh, diagnosing the world around you and saying, here's the sickness, here's the darkness, here's the brokenness, and I, I want to point you to the light, the cure, uh, the, the, the fix for those things, and it's anything but what the gospel defines those things as, then we are being tossed to and fro, and it gets real hard to, to follow Jesus real carefully if we're not anchored right there. This is the, the immaturity that Paul is talking about when we're unanchored to Christ, to who he is, to what he calls us to, to his teachings about the world around us. So in contrast to that definition of immaturity, of being like children, here's where we go next. Uh, look at uh, verse 15. Rather, this is our indication uh, that, uh, that Scripture is wanting to give us some contrast here. Rather, rather than human cunning, rather than the... the the whipping winds of of a do, false doctrine rather than the craftiness and deceitful schemes so in contrast to that type of language the people of God are called to speaking in what truth in love both of those things tied together i'm sure you've heard that phrase before if you've been uh, in the church for a while rather speaking the truth in love that's in contrast to the wickedness that we saw in verse 14 Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I think this is the fourth time we've seen just in these first few verses of chapter 4 where love is talked about. The reason I bring that up is because equipping which is the big part of what we're talking about um, this week, that Jesus equips his church. And whenever you talk about that, often you're talking about like Christian education, Sunday school, Bible studies, uh, some sort of like discipleship program that you're going to walk through. Maybe you're digging into doctrine and hermeneutics and theology and those kinds of things. And a lot of times, whenever we start talking about that area, we're talking about information and knowledge. Because you and I are people who, who live in a, in a very literate, very educated society. And so it's easy for us to believe. If I got a problem, I just got to start thinking about it the right way. When I think about it the right way, then I will naturally start doing the right thing. And then the problem is solved. That ain't going to work. It's, it makes sense to us, but it doesn't work. Let me tell you, I know that nachos and ice cream aren't that good for me. I know that in my head. I can talk to you about calories and macros and nutrients. I know that in my head. The reality is this, right? Now, there's some good parts of this, right? You get me going at speed. There's significant momentum. uh, But since I stopped playing football poorly a long time ago, that didn't come in handy that often, right? I know those things are bad for me. I know the science of it, but it doesn't change my life just because I know something in my brain. Love is talked about in here a lot because you don't just need good biblical knowledge, good doctrine, uh, the best possible teaching. You don't just need those things to fill up your brain. You also need to see this worked out into your hands. So when you believe, when you have faith in good doctrine and good teaching and a gospel-centered view of the world around us such that it changes not just your brain, not just your emotions, but out into your hands in the way that you love the people and the community around you, then we're talking about maturity. That's when we're talking about maturity. You guys being able to, to, to pass a theology test, I mean, that's good. But demons pass theology tests, Right? They know who God is. They were, they were able to see who the Savior was before God's people were, before the disciples did. Jesus would run into demons who would say, ooh, I know who you are, and he would say, keep your mouth shut and get out. Go live in a pig for a while, right? You passing a theology test doesn't mean maturity. So whenever you take theology out of your back pocket, and instead of using it as a gift, as an encouragement to the people around you, instead it becomes a bludgeon, a cudgel, a hammer for you to be able to tell everybody how superior you are, you are not, my friend. Using that gift for the body or that knowledge for the body, you are instead putting on full display a gap, a lack, a broken thing, an immaturity that continues to need to be equipped Speaking the truth in love—it's both parts of that that is necessary, that are necessary. If we if we leave out the truth, if we leave out good doctrine, if we leave out being well versed and grounded and rooted in our Bibles, we end up with a place that's kind of fun to hang around with for a while. It's sentimental, it's encouraging, it's comforting. You show up to church every week, and it's just like encouragement circle. You know, nobody, nobody is is going to stop me from eating nachos at a place that lacks truth and is all about love, right? They just keep feeding them to me until I have to buy a special car, right? <laughs> right? There's got to be truth and love. If you leave out the truth part, we are sentimental, and we have this false tolerance that says that, that tolerating you, that loving you, means I affirm everything about you, even if I see it leading you towards your death and demise, right? But if we leave out the love side of it, then we get arrogance, We get this brutal culture and we get this place that puffs up and where everybody starts competing one to another to see who is the greatest among you in terms of who can quote old theologians and and cite chapter and verse and win sword drills. I think sword drills are a good thing. But if that turns your kids into little Bible-thumping monsters and they're not good at loving their neighbors whenever they go to school, man, we've done a bad job, right? Same thing for you and me. It's gotta be both truth and love. It's that kind of maturity that brings things up. Here's, a, here's another way that uh, I just want to look at this, these, this last uh, couple of sections here. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way, which feels overwhelming and daunting, every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, every bit of it. So he's the head, all of the rest of us are the body, the people of God are the body. We are joined and held together by every joint With which it is equipped. So every piece, the fingernails, the cartilage, the joints, every part of the body, when each part is working properly, is grown up into maturity, speaking truth in love, then it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up, once again, in love. So it's every part of us in every way. And that kind of assignment feels daunting. Here's how we talk about it a little bit whenever we're talking about equipping at our church. When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? What's the most important thing for us in our life? He said, love the Lord your God with everything you are. That certainly means your brain. If theology, deep Bible study, Christian philosophy, the implications of ethics, the implications of the gospel on politics and world affairs around you, if, if, that, if somehow theology and Bible study, the efforts of the mind have become a bad word to you because of your experiences in the past? Would you let the Lord bring some healing and some restoration there? Because those can be and often are goods for the people of God. Allow yourself to love the Lord your God with your mind, with your soul, with your strength. That is your body. How you use your body in relationship with each other. How you use your body to serve one another. How you use your body to serve in your, in your marriage. You, you are... Um, There's there's not many kids around here, but I'll I'll say this carefully. You are created by God to have an, an intimate physical aspect of who you are. And that part of you should also be called to love God. Love God with everything that he has made for you, your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength, every bit of you. And he says the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. It's a good measure. It's a good start for as you start to say, like, wait, how do, how do we be built up? How do we grow in maturity? How do we speak truth and love in every way from every part of us? It's a good place to start with the Shema or with what Jesus calls the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with every bit of who you are. Another way we talk about it is this. The spiritual formation growing in Christian maturity is growing in our awareness of and our faithful response to The truths of God and the presence of his spirit. Growing in awareness of and in response to the truths of God and the presence of his spirit. Living more and more each day with an integrity about your life that says, just as deeply and as, as naturally as I believe in the truth of gravity and the laws of gravity, I believe in the truths of God. And it shows in the way I live and love, knowing all the time that I am not alone, that I'm not trusting only in my own weakness, but that the Spirit of God is here, He's present, and He's empowering the work that we have been called to. It's not just what you know, it's how you talk about it. It's not just what you do, church. It's not just truth, it's also love. Got to remember the wheelbarrow guy, right? So here's my question, some questions as I leave you with these things. Are you being tossed to and fro? Have you noticed in yourself that there are certain patterns of media consumption? There are certain people, when you spend too much time around them, that there are certain times that whenever you let yourself just binge on whatever it is. That can be food, but it can also be just ways of thinking, patterns of just sort of being cynical and bitter about the stuff around you, getting into these like sort of gossipy like whirlwinds where, where all of you just make yourself feel better by tearing other people down around you, by listening to the people who make you feel the most, whether that's angry or affirmed or whatever. Are you being tossed to and fro? Are there people who have a hold on you and end up indirectly or directly making you preach their gospel of what is good and bad news rather than Christ's gospel of what is good and bad? Do you know, do you see the areas that need to be equipped? That is, those areas among this body that are preventing the building up of each other and the unity that needs to be present here. Do you see those areas, and do you submit to and desire and look forward joyfully and expectantly towards the Lord using the gifts here to be able to equip this body for the work that he has set out before you? Leaders of this church, potential elders, maybe one day uh, deacons, Pastors, do you know that you have not just been given gifts, but you've been given for this people? You are here to serve them. That's what leadership looks like. You and I, brother, are not called to lord our authority over people as Gentiles do. But as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, you are called, my brother, to pour your life out for these people in the same way we saw him pour out his life for all of us. Here in just a moment, we're going to get to go and celebrate that big, beautiful, world-changing truth. As we continue in worship, there will be a slide that comes up on the screen and there's two tables presented here. When you get to that table, you're going to find a small piece of bread, that bread symbolizing Christ's body broken and given for us. You're going to find a small cup and in that cup is, is some juice which symbolizes Christ's blood being poured out as a sign of the new covenant for the forgiveness of sins that many might be saved. Every time we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we celebrate the good news of Jesus Christ until he returns. Amen? So as we prepare to continue in worship and to join at the table, brothers and sisters, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we're grateful today for who you are, for what you've done, for the good work that you've done here among these people at Redeemer San Angelo. Lord, um, we ask that your spirit would do um, the work of conviction, that your spirit would do the work of empowering, that your spirit would do the work of revealing the areas um, where you are calling these people to be equipped and, and, and sent and empowered for your work all the while. Um, as faithfulness and generosity and a deep desire to, for unity and to love one another well, to speak big, bold, beautiful truths, Lord, all the while. Uh, Lord, that they would also be growing in humility and in worship and in awe of you and the work that you've done so that as you do amazing, miraculous things, as you use these people and the gifts that you've given them to do things they cannot believe, things that they are consistently amazed by, that there is an, an ounce of desire, uh, for them to point to themselves, to shine the light on themselves, but for them to point to you and say, "Look, the Lord has done." Lord, I want to pray that this would be a place where your work is evident and on display and compelling, and and inexplicable to the wise and the strong and the community around them. That you would use these people these broken ones, foolish ones like me, that you would use this people to make your name great. We love you, we trust you. It's your name we pray, amen.